Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, friends of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is your host, Andre. And uh, the episode that we bring you today is with the illustrious presence of Steve Flink, Hall of Famer and historian. And uh, in this episode, I was not present, but uh, Vunch and Owen had a great opportunity to chat with uh, Steve about the Australian Open tournament and in particular the final. Um, so we hope you enjoyed this episode and we are sorry that we didn't have the opportunity to come up with this a little bit sooner. But we still hope that the Australian Open is still fresh in your mind so that you can still remember all of the data that they bring into this conversation and the great insights that um, three of my biggest tennis friends in life uh, are bringing into the table in this podcast. So we hope you enjoyed this as much as I did listening when I was editing this episode. So thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Vonch, and today uh, we're joined. I'm joined today by my good friend, uh, Owen. Oh, and it's uh, nice to see you again. Huh? How's it been? How's things been going since Australia just finished? It's good to see you as well. I'm finally catching up on sleep, which is good, and really excited to talk some tennis with Steve for the first time. Perfect. Um, so, joining the podcast, uh, joining the both of us today to unpack everything from the Australian Open and really putting it all in perspective, we have a special guest and friend of the podcast here today. We know him as Hall of Famer writer for Tennis.com, and author of two fantastic books, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time and Pete Sampras' Great News Revisited. Steve, it's a p- great pleasure to see you here again. You're looking quite sharp and elegant, as usual. <laughs> it's nice to be back, and I'm looking forward to recapping this Australian Open. We had a really a compelling fortnight this, this time around, as is almost always the case in Melbourne. Absolutely, and we should probably talk, uh, talk a little bit about how unusual this build-up really was to the Australian Open with uh, players being forced to quarantine in their rooms. Some of them for, I believe it was 72 players were forced into hard quarantine uh, lockdown and obviously many restrictions. And at the end of it, I think uh, even with the fans leaving for five days and then coming back and finishing the end of the tournament, I think uh, Craig Tiley and his team at Tennis Australia did a fantastic job uh, overall. And I think the players were very grateful, as you could tell in their ceremony speeches at the end. No doubt about it. It was it was a remarkable job that Tiley and company did because... It reminded me a bit of the U.S. Open. They had tricky problems to deal with as well, with the Cincinnati and New York and then the Open and a few cases early on during the Cincinnati part and real concerns, but they got through it smoothly here. As you mentioned, there was a lot of quarantining cases. Of the, they had COVID cases on the, from, the, from the plane coming over, and it really did make it exceedingly difficult on all the players. And I don't, I don't really think they're spoiled in that regard. I think it's a very hard way to enter the first major of the year uh, under those circumstances, but everybody handled it remarkably well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Tylee as well. He he said in an article interview that he went, like I think, a couple months with just a couple hours of sleep, which is what we did for the Australian Open. And he didn't even get to watch tennis. He was just trying to make it happen. So really, really impressive effort from him in Tennis Australia. 
Absolutely. And, you know, you know the, the, the telltale sign is that all of the players, there's no, there's no middle ground there. They all seem to have immense respect for him, and he's earned it. So uh, I'm, I'm glad they were able to, to play this tournament out and, and, and deal with crowds coming and going. And the fact that the crowds came back at the end, those last four days, was, was terrific because you would much rather see it happen that way than the crowds to be not allowed in down the home stretch of the tournament. So that, I thought, was fortunate for everyone concerned. Yep, well said. I mean, uh, great finish to the tournament. And uh, I guess, naturally, let's just get right into it, the men's final. I mean, uh, you know, heading into this one, I guess, um, you know, where should we start? I guess Novak Djokovic, incredible accomplishment by him to win his ninth uh, Australian Open. He's now 9-0 and in finals. Um, and I guess I want to ask this question that uh, it was it was quite evident that there was a huge disparity in experience here because this was Djokovic's 28th uh, Grand Slam final, I believe, 28th major final, and this was Medvedev's second. So how much of a role do you think that played going into it, even given the... Crucial, absolutely crucial. And I wrote in my piece, which I did this time for World Tennis Magazine online, that I thought that was a one of the really central reasons why Djokovic shined and why Medvedev did not was not able to play up to par is that it's one thing for him to beat Novak Djokovic as Medvedev did in the London in the round robin last year at the ATP finals or Cincinnati the year before that on the hard courts in the semifinals this is just a whole different animal so the head to head i think ended up being somewhat misleading 4-3 for Djokovic because you have to look at the circumstances surrounding each of those matches now suddenly they're playing a major final and Medvedev, yes, he did at least had tasted that experience once and did quite well to take Nadal the five at the Open a couple of years, of 2019 U.S. Open. But here he had a Djokovic who was really on a mission because I think Djokovic wanted this title even more after n- nearly finding himself taken out of the tournament by an abdominal injury that he suffered in the middle of his match with Taylor Fritz. So by the time he got to the final, he was utterly determined to win this. The other thing that worked for him, Vonch, and Owen was the uh, the fact that yeah, so many people were talking about Medvedev. He's on a 20-match winning streak. He'd won 12 matches against top 10 players in that span. He'd beaten Djokovic in that span. He'd beaten Nadal. I mean, he'd really knocked off just about every key rival in that in that phase of his career. And big titles, the Paris Masters 1000, the, the London ATP Finals, so that by the time he got to the finals here, despite one five-set match along the way, he was winning comfortably and very confident and beat Sitsipas, as I have sometimes trouble pronouncing, beat Stefanos in straight sets in the semi. So he came in on something of a high and I think believe, really believed in his chances coming in. But Djokovic is, you alluded to at the start, to be in your 28th major final, seeking your 18th title, and also to be coming in 8-0 and in Australian Open Finals. There were a lot of things working in his favor. And I think he did like shifting the burden of pressure back onto Medvedev's shoulders, in a sense, uh, talking that up a bit while Medvedev tried to kind of uh, retaliate in his, own, in his own friendly way about the pressure being on, on Djokovic. In fact, they each had a lot of pressure on them. But I, I, I do believe that Djokovic played one of his smartest and best major finals uh and and it it was probably the most gratifying major he's won in in a long long time yeah 
Certainly. And, and, you know, there was a lot of hype certainly going into it. And like you mentioned, uh, f- for good reason as well, people were really talking up Medvedev's chances. And, you know, I guess not too dissimilarly to the French Open final where um, people were really liking Djokovic's chances as well going into that one. And so it's it's quite striking sometimes how these players on their in their best court and their kingdom, if you call it that, with Nadal at Roland Garros and Djokovic here at Australian Open. Yeah, I like the comparison. I like the analogy because it's true that since Novak has done, you know, is, has has the career edge over Rafa and and had played him tough and beaten him once at Roland Garros and had a, had a, another close call back in 2013 in the semis. And so he, there was some talk, some feeling. Well, Novak at this point, he maybe he can even beat him on the clay and even do it in best of five. And of course, he got crushed. So. Yes, there is something of a parallel there. But I I think that in Medvedev's case, I think a couple of things happened is that Djokovic got off to this blazing start. I thought he was Uh, letter perfect for three games. Then inexplicably, he played one loose game on his serve and he got somewhat tight. I thought he let him back into the set. But then from three all, he really kind of regained the ascendancy and, and then he struck at 5-6. He got Medvedev down, love 40, and Medvedev made it back to 30-40, and then Novak made that really nice block return deep down the middle off a serve to his backhand. And that's just the kind of return to play against Medvedev, who doesn't like... He doesn't particularly like dealing with uh, balls hit down the middle. He'd he'd almost rather be a bit on the stretch with, you know, all that ranginess he's got at 6-6. So I I think that return really kind of... It gave him a little time to think. It gave him that time to think that you don't want to, and you don't want that on a set point down. And I think that was critical on Djokovic, tucked the set away. And then it was surprising that Djokovic played the bad game to start the second set. But really, I don't think you could fault him from that, from that juncture right until the end of the match. Because before you knew it, from down a break in the second at one love, he's won four games in a row. He ends up winning the set 6-2. So he broke him three times in that second set. And then he... He uh, controlled the tempo again in the third set to win that 6-2. I thought it was a pretty extraordinary performance on Djokovic's part and very poised. Well, I think that Medvedev was was very uh, in mental disarray, is how I would put it. And all of this constant banter with his corner and his coach, and his they're all sitting there courtside helpless while he's sort of feeling sorry for himself out there on the court and almost looking for them to solve problems that he, he needs to solve on his own. So I thought he showed a, 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 a maybe a bit more immaturity than expected. And, Vance, you've seen him, and you have too, Owen. He has this tendency to to get himself in that kind of a mental, frazzled state, and and, and, and some, often he's been able to work his way out of it. That was certainly the case at the 2019 U.S. Open when he was, you know, getting into all the cases. You know, he had his incidents with the crowds and <clears> – <throat> and sort of egged them on and sometimes didn't behave very well and other times did. And you didn't quite know what was going to, what to expect from him, but sometimes he's rescued himself in those situations. There was no rescuing himself this time around because he's just up against two formidable an opponent in Novak Djokovic. I hope in Medvedev's case, he'll learn that he's got to be a little calmer out there, especially in big finals, because you can't waste that energy. I mean, we. I, I believe that his conditioning could so, could still improve somewhat, and in the best of five, you have to save all of that energy for playing those tough long points against Djokovic. Now, the other thing I would add, Djokovic played the match largely on his terms. 
he was able to hit a, you know, he, he, he broke down Medvedev on both sides, particularly the forehand, and then started hitting a lot of balls down the middle and daring Medvedev to come up with, create an angle or find a way out of that pattern, and Medvedev couldn't. Plus, that Djokovic had one of the great serving tournaments uh, of his career, I would say. Yes, it, aces before the final. Excuse me? I was saying uh, his serve really struck me and his early aggression in, in points and his ability to finish points uh, rather quickly and not and avoid those backhand-to-backhand long exchanges that he was dragging himself into in their earlier previous meetings. And, yeah, yeah, that's true. So but we did get when that did happen, he he was not found wanting, as the British would say. He you know right. was able to prevail in those as well. Yeah, he wanted to. He, he there was no reason if you could end the point more aggressively and early, but he had enough played enough long points. I thought that he got to Medvedev's legs, he got to his head. Medvedev was was a very confused competitor out there for much of the match, understandably so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the backhand to backhand exchanges reminds me of this point they played late in the third set. This was the one time Medvedev really tried to make a push in in the second half of the match. It was four two on Djokovic's serve, and Medvedev had a fifteen thirty lead, and then Djokovic got it to forty thirty, and they played this point that ended with them just trading backhands and trading backhands, and it went on for fifteen shots, and then finally Medvedev netted off a neutral ball. Djokovic just outlasted him. And then Djokovic was just pointing to his head all off the court and all the way to the changeover, and he was just locked in. Even in those exchanges, which going into the match, we some of us, including me, didn't really think favored him because of Medvedev's great consistency. He was able to enter wall mode as he does best in these big moments. It's true. Medvedev has, in some of the cases when he's beaten Novak, really in all three, he's been in a good frame of mind. He's been pretty calm, playing as if he had nothing to lose. This was, this was a whole different situation for him in a five and a major. So, I don't think it's a case that Djokovic cannot win the long rallies from Medvedev, and I still would take Djokovic back in over Medvedev's any day of the week. But it's a point well taken that when he had the opening. To, to be aggressive and to end it sooner and make it more of an eight or 10 stroke exchange. He did it, did it very successfully. And of course he also, you know, sometimes it looks as if he's getting into trouble when he goes to the short backhand ship or the drop shot. But while he's doing that, even if Medvedev makes the play, he's making, he's, he's taking again, robbing Medvedev of energy and, and making him a bit uncomfortable. And Medvedev did a nice job of anticipating a few of the drop shots, but it, it was a matter of just it, it ended up hurting him in the long run, and he didn't have the same kind of variety. The other thing that struck me is when Medvedev got down two sets, you notice he tore the latter stages. He was going for a couple of huge second serves and double folded, mm-hmm. and he got he got away with those against Djokovic in Cincinnati in 19. He took some big chances when he was down a set and in danger of going down a break, and he pulled them all, all power to him, but it's not the kind of thing that Medvedev's going to succeed with match in, match out. It's sort of a desperate tactic, I think, because it's such a flat second serve that, that you're, you know, you're rolling the dice and too likely to double the fall. Yeah, it totally, it totally is. He missed a couple by several yards. Yeah, I think that's a great summation of the match. Uh, I guess from Medvedev's standpoint, um, what do you think are some technical adjustments that he needs to make? Because I feel like sometimes um, his trend, I feel like his transition game and coming to the net um, definitely needs some improvement in these big match situations because I find that a lot of times he has mid-court balls to finish off um, either with a strong approach and follow that up into the net. But I notice a lot of the times he prefers to retreat back behind the baseline to 
go for that uh, approach shot, but then retreat back behind the baseline. It's almost like he doesn't want to finish that point on his own terms. And he'd rather, like, I've seen him volley really well. I've seen him volley come back from two sets above down. He was serving and volleying against Nadal. Nadal and that helped him a lot come back in uh, in that U.S. Open final as well. Even at the ATP finals, I noticed he was very successful in terms of his net points won and his approach shots against Dominic Team in that final. So uh, it sometimes surprises me that he's not willing to finish off the points at there because I think that can make him a lot more efficient. And he doesn't, have, from what I can tell, he has decent hands at the net. So... Yeah, decent. You're right. I, 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 I think, though, that the instances that you're referring to, such as the Nadal against Rafa and surprising Rafa by getting in and team, and it was more the, the element of surprise and great volleying technique. You know, they didn't expect mm-hmm. to see him up there. And at some days, maybe he's, he's a little sounder than others, but I still think he needs a lot of there's, yeah. there's work to be done to turn himself into a better volley. And then you alluded to the transition game. I think he needs a he could learn to hit a better chip the backhand, chip the backhand approach, but it's not—he's not comfortable doing that. So he has to sort of dig it out with his two-hander or make the approach off a low fo- ball onto his forehand. Sometimes he's—he he finds that too difficult to do. I, there's there's no doubt he could do a lot of work in that area. Uh, whether he's going to make, whether he's going to upgrade there to a significant degree, we we don't know yet. But I, I agree with your observation in the sense that. It would help him. I'm just not as convinced of the volleying technique as you are. I think he, mm-hmm. I think he still has a ways to go, and that those were brilliant tactical moves in the matches you mentioned. You know, he's catching off guard, but these were obvious instances that you're referring to when he backed off. No, no mm-hmm. doubt about it. He'd he'd rather retreat and and try to win the point from the baseline. He definitely was. The mind was was muddled in this match, but I think that's because Djokovic threw so much at him. It wasn't, you know, it was the, the aggressive short points, the drop shots, later hitting down the middle. He didn't get him, give him too much of the same look the whole match. Uh, you know, he mixed it up well. And in the end, I, I think Medvedev had, had, had no confidence whatsoever. Yeah, I think I just find it so shocking and, you know, superb on Djokovic's part that he's able to break Medvedev seven times in this match. And, I mean, Medvedev barely losing serve. I mean, how many times was he able to win so many free points against Tsitsipas, you know, in the semis and in other matches where he was just able to serve his way out of trouble and win so many quick points that way. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. It shows you what, what that Djokovic, to me, is far and away the best return in the game. Not, I know Rafa can win. He, sometimes the stats might look a bit better for Rafa, but I think that's more of his ability to get into the point but the, and, and eventually break. But the actual return itself, I mean... This was some superb returning from Djokovic because he was very aggressive on second serve returns. And then he got so many first serves back, like the one on set point that we were talking about in the first set. It wasn't that it was a great return, but it was blocked back very deep down the middle, deep enough to really neutralize Medvedev. And and it's an extraordinary achievement to break him seven times. The guy loses a serve seven times up until then the whole tournament. And then you have uh, the Zarev match in the quarters where he broke Zarev six times. I mean, these are great servers. And Zarev put his finger on it, saying that he knew in that match, he knew he needed to be up two breaks in those sets. Because what happened in that match was that they were set all, and Djokovic has won the second set easily. And then next thing you know, he's down in the third set, 1-4, love 30, and runs off five games in a row with some spectacular returning. And then the fourth set, 
He's down love three, serving at 1540 in danger, going down two breaks again, and he holds on there. Zarev is right. You're, Djokovic is such a great returner that you don't feel safe with the one break. You feel you need the second. And uh, I, I think Medvedev never expected to lose his serve more than a couple of times in this match. Uh, I think he believed going in that his serve was going to carry him. And he's thinking of matches like London or even Cincinnati, you know, where he doesn't get broken much, where uh, Novak had not been as successful, but he was not catching him at his best on those on those occasions. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And in, um, in the 5-6 game, there was another spectacular return on the love 30 point. Medvedev hit a massive serve down the tee that really hit the corner. And Djokovic got back the sprawling return, and it was a lob. But Medvedev didn't expect the serve to come back. He took it as a swing volley. It clipped the net, and Djokovic passed him. And it's just those tiny differences like that. Yeah, even he though, unlucky. He, yeah. Medvedev was a bit unlucky that his, dry, his swing volley clipped the top of the net court, but yeah. I'm not sure it was gonna, he was going to win the point with it anyway. And you're right. That was a that was a it was a magnificent return off a very good serve. And that's that's that that, that has to. I mean, when you get 64 percent of your first serves in, as Medvedev did, you 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 you, you figure you're going to be in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. It's when you're down around 50 that you're worried. But to be in that range of 64, 65, and and get broken that many times, I mean, you're just not going to have any chance to win the match. And then you combine that with Djokovic's magnificent serving. The number. What was interesting to me was he only had a couple of aces, but but yeah, so three in many, total. Three in total, but 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 you know his the number of service winners that he hit. I, I'm not quite sure who did the stats for the Australian Open, but I'm in great disagreement with them because he had many more than they put down on the stat sheet because there were so many serves he hit down the tee back, uh, that Medvedev lunged at and could barely you know he was returning into the bottom of the net or or feet long, not even close going long. So he had really no play on those. The serves were so well placed. And then Djokovic was getting a little more velocity in this tournament. than We were looking at normally about five, six miles an hour faster on average, I would say. And so that, that, that was a very tough combination to fight. Djokovic's great returning combined with, with his, his serving. I mean, in that in that state, you know, he can be almost unbeatable, particularly since he was at that stage physically in much, you know, he'd gotten over his real physical woes from the middle of the tournament, the Fritz match leading into Raonich and carrying over a bit into Zarev. So by the finals, you could see in the semis that he was feeling a lot better physically. Mm-hmm. And in the final, I think he felt great. And so that spelled a lot of trouble for Medvedev. Good learning experience for Medvedev because he's going to realize to beat to beat these guys on big occasion. And maybe and maybe it was a false sense of security that he got so close against Nadal because people forget that in that final, Rafa was two sets to love and a breakup in the third. Rafa was very annoyed with himself for not closing that match in straight and having to go down, go the distance. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how Medvedev responds uh, because the next major I don't think is going to be very good for him in Paris. I think he still has a lot to on clay. But then... He could be. He could do something at Wimbledon. That's still not his best, the grass. But he's with that serve. He could still be dangerous. And then it would be the Open that I would expect, where he would be at his most dangerous again. That to me, I don't. Exp- I don't think there's much chance at all he can win Roland Garros. And maybe slim at Wimbledon. At, at the Open, he'll be right in there among the prime mm-hmm. contenders. Yeah, absolutely. Then the other thing is that um, in these best of five set matches and just in general, I mean, Djokovic's record, I think when he wins the first set is just stunning. It's like 96% and it's the best in the open era. 
Yeah, it's and, that the best of the open air, but that's every that's all that's best of three and best of five. Yes. Difference. And, 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 and he's aware of that. He's aware of that, by the way. You know, he's he's well aware of it that it, it, he's just so confident when he gets up a set. And and in, and as I say, not just in these majors, but everywhere. So that was the that was the other reason why that first set was so critical because yeah. he didn't it as much as Medvedev needed it. But once once Novak was up a set, he was going to be uh, uh, virtually unstoppable. Do you think there's any uh, any anything to do with the fact that maybe there's so many the when the big three were playing, especially Roger and Rafa. I mean, they had a lot of opportunities to play best of five set tennis, whether it be through Davis Cup or some Masters finals, like the Rome finals were always best of five or other cases like that, I feel like there's a, still a big gap between, if we're talking about a changing of the guard, between a best of three set, between winning Masters titles and winning ATP finals and winning Grand Slam finals against the big three. Certainly it feels like the next gen could use some more um, practice during the year other than the four, other than just four times a year to yeah, you know, perhaps I mean, work on that. Unfortunately, the opportunities are just not going to be there. They, they've got to get, they've got to gain that experience and and exploit it, just mm-hmm. by major after major. And obviously, it was a good experience for Medvedev to play the five setter with Nadal at the U.S. Open in '19. But you, you know, you need to be involved in more of those, mm-hmm. and then and just to deal with the mentality of a big occasion, a major final, especially because Medvedev looked pretty relaxed the whole tournament, with the exception of that one five setter. Six love in the fifth. That was a weird match for him mid tournament, but otherwise, uh, he he you know he was maybe he would benefit if he'd had a few more a few tougher matches along the way. I, I wonder about that. It, it it could have done him some good if he'd been pushed more once once or twice, and been a long four setter or a tough five setter as well. Might might have done him good. We'll never know. But uh, the only way they're going to the only way they're going to get better at this is just to keep getting into the latter stages of majors. And Stefano Tsitsipas is, is, is starting to do that. I mean, we've seen now, you know, second time in Australia in the semis and one at Roland Garros last year where he took Novak to five. So he's at least he's picking up some valuable experience in, in best of five. You know, frankly, you talk uh, Vanch about, say, maybe something lacking these guys. I feel like Tsitsipas is quite uh, comfortable in best of five. Unfortunately yeah. for him, unfortunately for him, after beating Rafa in what may have been the most dramatic match of the tournament, then he didn't have that much left physically. I thought he would recover a bit better than he did for the Medvedev semi. Uh, he didn't look very fresh physically to me in that match, and he finally got going a bit in the third set and almost managed to steal it. But he, uh, I, I thought we would see better stuff from him, particularly with the confidence he should have gained from from. Uh, being only the third player ever to beat Rafa from two sets up down. Mm-hmm. Great achievement. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I also think, um, we, uh, so I at least underestimated how bad of a matchup Medvedev was going to be for Tsitsipas. I think um, his his low backhand cross court actually bothers Tsitsipas's one-hander a bit more than the heavy high top spin of Rafa. And Tsitsipas can't create as much pace um, with that backhand. And he was really just at the mercy of Medvedev when he wanted to change direction. He also really struggled with the return. I think Medvedev won 88% of his first serve points, if I remember correctly. So while I was expecting a better physical recovery from Tsitsipas, I think matchup-wise, he was always going to have a very hard time in that match. 
Yeah, it has. You're right. It's a good point. And he's, he has had trouble in that matchup, has just the one win. But I, I'm, and those are definitely the factors you mentioned in the low balls. No, no doubt they hurt him. Uh, but I, I also think there was just a sharpness missing in general. Mm-hmm. And also, if he could have served himself more the way he did in the last three sets against Nadal, just to keep himself in there and maybe get himself into some tie breaks, that, that would have helped. But he didn't serve. There was really no stage of the match where he served particularly well. Even the third set, he was down to break and got it back and almost came through. So, yeah, I agree. At this point, it has been something of a nightmare matchup. I think that could change over time because I think I've seen him, when he gets rolling against Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer, and seen what he's done against all three on his best days, and it's impressive. And... uh I, I, I hope over time, maybe he'll solve some of that riddle that Medvedev is throwing at him right now. Good point, yeah. though. A good point about the matchup, and I like that. Yeah, for sure. And, you, you know, you mentioned the Tsitsipas-Nadal match. I mean, for two sets of that match, it seemed like Nadal was uh, serving brilliantly, and Tsitsipas was having trouble responding, and he was, um, you know, first two sets quite comfortably for Rafa, and even in the third set, he was serving his way to basically love games in the tiebreak. I mean, just one point lost on his serve, basically until the tiebreak. And what do you make of those uh, five unforced errors from Rafael Nadal in the third set tiebreak when he's two sets to love up and two easy overhead smash mi- mis- mistakes? That shocking, uh, shocking. Yeah. Uh, well described. In 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 fairness to Sitsipas, he did serve himself quite well. He was having a lot of easy holds in the third, but no- nonetheless, you go into a tiebreak. Rafa is the one with the two set lead. Rafa should still be confident. I think the one that bothered him more than the one later that he took on the bounce near the baseline in the overhead was the first overhead because he was such a short lob. And normally Nadal with his eyes closed would put that away. I don't know whether he was looking up and it, it was a, a vision issue, but he completely bungled that smash and hit it long. And he and some people there was some debate in the ESPN booth about whether he should have taken it on the bounce, but he doesn't normally need to take a lob like that on the bounce. He's just going to put it away. I think that shook him. And you're right, five on fours, you know, the, a couple off the ground, three off the ground, I guess, and the two smashes. So it was a very disappointing tiebreak performance and then he seemed to physically wilt some even you could see it by even the middle of the fourth and I think it was great discipline on Rafa's part that kept him going in the fifth and he served first in the fifth which helped but then suddenly at five all he played that miserable game on his serve yeah four in a row you could say that the first was semi-forced the last three were unforced and he uh that that had to disappoint him nearly broke back had his chances in the last game, but that's a desperate way to try to uh, salvage a match. And I mean, and in the end, uh, his opponent deserved it. But very jarring for Rafa. Now, here's the thing. People have got to remember, the back was a real issue. And, and, he, and it, was, it was somewhat misleading again because he wins all those straight set matches without playing that great. Physically, he wasn't taking too much out of himself. And the back seemed to be improving, but... Uh, he just was so much better than those other guys. And Fanini is, remains a very flaky, enigmatic competitor. You just don't know, ever know what you're getting with him. And Fanini blew a 4-2 lead in the second set and was gone. But I, I, I never would have expected the, the form that Nadal was in for two sets. I thought he was, was going to. And also, normally, I would have liked his chances even after dropping the tiebreak in the third. I would have picked him 6-3 and 4th. But you could see pretty quickly that that wasn't going to happen. And 
And Stefanos was holding, continued to hold serve the rest of the way there after that great serving in the third. So I give him credit for that and for lifting his game. And for Rafa, obviously disappointing. But you have to look back and say, what if he'd gotten through that match? Let's say it was four or five and he wins. How much would he have had left for Medvedev? And then how much would he have had left for a Djokovic? It's pretty doubtful to me that he he just went. And now we know he's pulled out of Rotterdam, his next yeah. tournament. So it that's evidence that he's still not physically right. And he, he did say the back was definitely was feeling virtually no pain those last couple of matches. But it, the preparation that he had was was very disrupted. What, that, that He's a guy that is a creature of habit and he wants his practice session. So I think he that it, it, this was just not meant to be. It's you think about it. It's the. It's the bad luck tournament of his career. Mm -hmm. Time after time, since he won the title over Federer in five sets in a spectacular final in 09, uh, things have just not gone right for him. And the, no, the most, most prominently, at the, the bad luck, losing a, an epic to Djokovic in five hours and 53 minutes in the 2012 final. All poised to beat Vavrinka in 2014. He's never lost it before, and his back goes on him in the warm up and he loses in four and then the match we talked about with roger three one up in the fifth and 17 so he said so been so close to getting that second title completing a career collection of at least two majors each now i now i have real doubts whether it will, will ever happen mm -hmm. um, um, Steve, Steve, uh, oh, sorry. what do you guys think about his chances to ever win another australian i i don't like them i think i think after 2019 it showed that Djokovic was always going to be a very very daunting opponent for him there and so i think he needs djokovic to lose which is unlikely djokovic has won the last three lost that he needs what um so i think to win he needs djokovic to lose which is pretty unlikely because djokovic has won the last three I, I agree with that no doubt but i also think unfortunately there's a there's some others like stefanos who on yeah. their day there's going to be other danger matches down the stretch from quarters on too that's that's where i worry about him and and uh you know, maybe he'll surprise us. He keeps making impressive showings. He puts himself into the thick of the battle. But And even last year, it was a good quarterfinal with team. But again, he lost a team there. Team is now an increasing problem for him, too, So uh, on all surfaces. So it will be tough. It will be tough. On the other hand, uh, I think he's going to be a pretty happy fellow when he goes to Roland Garros in a few months. <laughs> Might get a 14th title there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just on that, I was going to say also it's it's striking how unlucky he also gets in quarterfinals. If we look at like 2011, he was injured against Ferrer. 2010, there was that match against Murray where he pulls out in the third set against. Um, then there was, you know, 2018 against Chilich. That was so unfortunate. Pulled out of that one too, yeah. So And then 2015, he was crushed by Burdich, but 2015 is a mediocre Rafa, but still it's... Yeah, he wasn't ready for that physically. Yeah, a bunch of quarterfinals, but uh, but most importantly uh, with those finals that right. where you figure in you know in the three he's going to surely win one of those and not able to do it. So mm -hmm. sad for him. But I thought his, he was his usual classy self after after the match and not making a lot of excuses. And uh, yeah. you know he's he's a very uh, dignified individual, no doubt about it. He'll just move on, and uh, and before he knows it, he's going to be back in in paris it's not we're not that far off we're almost into march now so he'll yep. be prime that very soon you next he'll be out there on the clay and this time he should get better preparation than he even did last year so it'd be hard to beat him absolutely um and the other thing is um i guess since we were talking about the back injury um 
Djokovic had that serious abdominal scare in the third round against Fritz when he was trying to change directions at one all in the third and uh, slipped on the Melbourne paint. And, you know, since then, I I just keep on reading a lot of unfair treatment uh, from Djokovic in the media um, about this pain and people calling it that he's faking an injury, you know, even after being up two sets to love and, you know, questioning a lot of uh, a lot of things. And this there's always seems to be some some kind of media scrutiny around Djokovic, uh, no matter what he does. It seems like even going back to the Craig Tiley letter uh, before the tournament, with the with the with those uh, requests being taken out of context, and then things about the injury, and you could clearly tell even in the Raonic match and Zverev match that he wasn't right uh, physically for parts of that, and it wasn't really until the semis yeah, that he improved. Especially the Raonic match, you know, it was very clear he was wincing a lot. I saw a lot of wincing after even after hitting winners. This was not somebody who was just feeling sorry for himself and feeling pain and looking for any excuses. No, I, I agree with your assessment. It really baffles me that this goes on and on with the excessive criticism of him. And he's not being given this the same type of the scrutiny that he gets is not extended to Nadal and Federer and other players. Yeah. They benefit of the doubt. In other words, here's a perfect example with Rafa's back. Did you hear anybody saying after the first four rounds, well, what's what's all this nonsense with Rafa's back? No, and they shouldn't be and they shouldn't be saying it. I'm not saying, but but the skepticism doesn't extend to these other guys. And I think it's sad thing for Novak. And listen, early in his career, and he'd be the first to admit it, he was never a hypochondriac, but there were times he called for the trainer and retired a lot in those days. And it, mm. it, but that, that was partly a matter of growing up. That was a partly a matter of growing into his physical talent and emotionally and a lot of things. But what he has been the last 10 years is nothing short of the ultimate professional. And I feel like uh, yeah, people won't give him it. Brad Gilbert made your point on the air. He said, you know, why, are, if you're up two sets, why, you know, people on Twitter were apparently saying stuff. If you're up two sets, why would you then want to create, what, what, where do you need the excuses? He just was in. Yeah, exactly. He was clearly very restricted in his movement after that. He could barely lunge for returns. I mean, he was allowing uh, uh, Fritz to hold serve far too easily in a way that would not have been possible had he been healthy. And then the other thing, the other telltale sign was the scream that he emitted when he won the match in the dead silence with the fans having left. And that was a sign of somebody that wasn't, it wasn't just, oh my God, I'm so glad I survived this. I could, it was, it was more about, the relief of overcoming the injury and the hope that he could then recuperate in time for rounds, which he did. But it, I, I don't understand it. I'm with you 100% on that. I think it's a shame that people will never seem to cut him any slack. And then there's a lot of debate about whether it was a tear or not a tear. But at this point, I really don't care about that. I feel like, look, he he, he made the recovery and he doesn't need to make excuses this is he's owned this tournament as he showed once again in the end. So I just wish that that didn't happen. But so, by the way, a brief retreat to Rafa. I just was thinking of something that when you when you brought up the Ferrer match, yeah, in 2011. It's that also was another golden missed opportunity for Rafa. He was going for the Rafa slam, correct? Right? Yeah. On the last day of, of 2010, and that was unfortunate for him too because he he was going to have a pretty good chance, I think, coming off the 2010 campaign to win this first major. Plus, he he had a great record against Ferrer. Uh, that's not a match he was going to lose normally. So, anyway, that's just a brief interjection. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you you hit on everything there. But the the other part of that is that um, the way Djokovic is kind of describing his overcoming the injury is, first of all, he plans to uh, come up with a documentary. He, there was a documentary crew following him around. And so I think we'll know more about what happened behind the curtains there. But I also think uh, he also said that he used he didn't practice in the days off. And, you know, he spent 10 hours on the table trying to recover with his physio Uli and, you know, other using the Australian Open physios. So he did everything in his power to try to heal, um, try to heal on time and, you know, try to make that less of a concern. But he did also mention a tear after the Fritz match. And it turns out after the tournament, he'd got another MRI done. And it turned out that um, he was he had a 17 centimeters tear and it grew to about 25 uh, it was at 1.7 centimeters and so, then it grew to um, 2.5 but yeah right right millimeters sorry my bad 25 millimeters so 2.5 centimeters but regardless it's um it, it seems like he's going to be out for some time i think to fully recover and we might not see him until monte carlo i guess uh yeah he knew that i think he always knew that risk he understood that from the beginning but felt it was worth it to go after it and it, and it was and he'll be fine if he doesn't play to monte carlo that's that's it's fine. He could probably use the break after what he went through over there. But I, I, I just think it's I, – I, I guess there's no way that he can erase this image that people have of him. And I think he understands that. And he talked about it in the press conference afterwards and people having a right to their opinions. I think it, it's too bad considering the many fine qualities he has. And listen, if he does something – he's the first one to understand that if he – smacks a ball carelessly as he did at the U.S. Open. It was a freakish thing that he hit that line zone, but he knew he had himself to blame, and that was and, – and accepted it. But when he's doing things like he did over there, just in, the, in, 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 in kind of a courageous fashion, gritty fashion, just to find a way to get through this tournament. And as you mentioned, the off days. It reminds me a bit of Pete Sampras went through that at the 2000 Wimbledon when he broke Roy Emerson's record and won his 13th as he got injured in the – Second round, so from the third round on, for after that, he was not practicing on his days off. Very similar. It's a very difficult way to win a major when you can't even get your practice sessions in on your days off and you come out on the court cold. And that's what Djokovic was doing, coming out cold. And it was, it was his professionalism, it was his discipline, it was his determination that got him through those next couple of matches. Nice comebacks against Zareb in the third and fourth set. And then by the semi... You know, that was a break to play a qualifying the semis, and he took full advantage of it. It was a good quality match that tuned him up well for the final, and then he played a superb final. So I, yeah. I think that people should be talking about is his greatness. And uh, he need not make any excuse, any excuses at all. Doesn't have to. Yeah, I, I think the, the difficult skyhook smash he hit on the championship point was emblematic of what he went through on and off court. Uh, during during the two weeks he this was a really really well-deserved win for him he fought like hell throughout the tournament and uh yeah 18 will definitely feel good for him and he said after um now that he's secured he's definitely going to pass Federer's men's record for weeks at number one so now he said he's just going to focus on the majors more and that makes perfect sense as well so Uh, it does I do think he may amend that a bit later in the year because uh, what I mean by that is I think Oh, right. Yeah, he's not talking about that now. But when he gets past the open, I think he's going to realize, okay, he's not going to, nobody breaks Sampras' six years in a row, but he can have the most total years, which is going to be, I think people should explain. To me, that's a bigger achievement than even the weeks, if he does it. Because ending the year number one is, is, is a great achievement. And I, so I do think, and especially if he has this long break to Monte Carlo, if that is the case, 
that maybe he's got a little more energy left post-U.S. Open to play the tournaments that he needs to play to hold on to that number one ranking. I have to see what the points look like at that stage. But I think it's going to be very tempting is the wrong word, but I think it's going to be a, a definite a, a goal. I think it's going to be it's going to be a driving force for him at that stage of the year to say, I got to, you know, and then get it, get your seventh. And then you don't worry about rankings at all starting next year. Only majors. Makes perfect sense to me. And the the other thing I was going to mention, since you brought up the quarterfinal with Zarev, there were a lot of chances missed for Zarev in that match. And, you know, up 4-2 as well. He was up 30 love, I think. Um, and he, and then two double faults in that game, if I'm not mistaken. And then, you know, set point in the fourth set as well. And Djokovic came up with some incredible clutch shots, um, you know, deep that is stretch. Right. The the set point in the fourth set, and jo- that was a weird game because Djokovic was up 40-love in that 5-6 game in the fourth. Made an incredible lunging one-handed backhand stab into the open court and thought he had the hold. And Zverev wins four points in a row, and Djokovic aces him out wide to the backhand. Holds on, they go to the tie break, and then at 7-6 in the tie break, he aces him down the cheek. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was great clutch moments. You're right. From Zverev's standpoint, he was disappointed but I don't, you know, aside from those two doubles in the 4-2 game that you mentioned, he didn't, there was nothing that about it. I thought Djokovic also played his way out of out of trouble quite brilliantly. And it was a high-quality match overall. The four set was some great tennis. And, uh, but yeah, you lament those missed opportunities, no doubt about it. He was, he, he, uh, he held his composure well. Yes, he smashed his racket once in the Zarev match, but... That got it, that sort of just got it out of his system, and there I thought he was able to play really well under pressure the rest of the way. Yeah, definitely. Um... But Zarev, it, it does tell me that you know what we saw from Zarev at the U.S. Open last year and getting the final and coming so close against Team, serving for the match after having been up to, in the fifth set after being up two sets to love and losing that incredibly tight tiebreak that he and the tennis he's played ever since really, I'm still very encouraged about what's going to happen to him in the years ahead. I just think he's, you know, he's a great player. And the second serve, you know, there's no, he will run into these woes with his second serve. And the two doubles that you talked about in the 4-2 game there, uh, you know, one of them was he went for the huge second serve and the other one he kind of babied it. And that problem with him is he can't seem to find the middle ground. But boy, the rest of his game, I'm impressed in the forehand, which I thought was more a bit more flawed in the past than it is right now. I'm more encouraged about his forehand. The two-hander is just a beautiful stroke. And he moves incredibly well for his size. So, And and there, by the way, Owen, is a matchup that I don't think is bad. Zarev Medvedev is a good matchup for... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Both in my mind. And, I, I agree. Uh, and and I think so. So I think he can go toe to toe with just about anybody. And he he definitely worries Rafa. They haven't played that much, but they had that five setter in Australia, in seventeen. You know, he got close, and you know he's beaten him in the year end championships. Yeah. And, and and 
and Paris last year. last year. Yeah. 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 And you know, he, he exactly. And Paris last year was a great performance. Great yep. performance. And so I just feel like, okay, he definitely matches up well with Rafa. He plays Novak tough. He's beaten Roger. He doesn't mind playing Roger. I mean, his game actually matches up pretty well against everybody. And we show, we saw against team. That was a very well match at the U.S. Open. And so I, I'm kind of encouraged about where he might be headed. I hope all the problems in, the, in his private life get sorted out so that professionally he can do himself justice. Yep. Totally agree with that. And the other thing is, um, how about Aslan Karatsev? It seems like every tournament, every Australian Open, we always have that one surprise semifinalist. Like we had, we had Hyun Chung and Kyle Edmund, um, and we had you know some other ones in the past. But I guess we had Chekinado also at the French. Um, I mean, I, I'm much more encouraged about Karatsev because I feel like he actually showed a lot this tournament that he can belong. I guess as a top. 20 player maybe top because he was playing really really well even against Djokovic in the semis yeah no I think he's it'd be very surprised if he doesn't end this year I could see him even going a bit higher anywhere between 15 and 30 15 and 25 uh that, that you know you beat you beat a guy like Schwartzman granted Dimitrov has hurt his back but also what really impressed me was his level against Djokovic in the semis the scores don't do him justice he played hard. He played. He, he he made every set competitive. He made a really good comeback in the second set when Djokovic mm-hmm. was ready to bury him. He's up four one two breaks, and the next thing you know, Novak is serving out the set and down break points. So that, I I really think this guy showed a lot of gumption in that match and broke back early in the third again. So his attitude and his his uh, this sort of quiet intensity that he exhibited, I. I I like that as well as the fact that I think his game does not have that many holes in it. And so there's no reason he can't make a sharp climb because he's now going to get into tournaments he never could have been near before. So and and he seems like a good guy. On top of everything else, I like his press conferences. So he's a great story. Yeah, fantastic, really. Um, I guess a a disappointment for me this tournament, um, just because I expect so much from him now, is Dominic Thiem. Um, my, I, I want to get your assessment of it because from my, my understanding, um, you know, obviously one of the matches of the tournament was team Kyrgios and that fantastic comeback that he did and finished off that match beautifully with that backhand winner and, you know, really looked in, in good shape to me. And it, it seemed like, yeah, the courts are a little quick, but he seemed to adjust, uh, by the time it got to the fourth round and, you know, then all of a sudden he's playing with no crowd a day session when he's used to night session before and he's playing a guy in Grigor Dimitrov who'll make you work really hard. And I noticed that his footwork was off. Like on a lot of his shots, he was spraying balls left and right with his forehand. He wasn't converting his chances. He had game points in both. He was had a 3-1 lead in both sets and he let those slip away. And then I kind of just felt like he asked for a change of shoes or something um, midway through. And I just felt like something was wrong physically and he didn't want to talk about it. But I, as soon as I went on Twitter and I read the Austrian part of his press conference, he mentioned something about his right foot. So I feel like, and um, I, I guess it's a combination of that and then just flat from the Kyrgios match maybe. And then I also think the fact that his coach, Nicholas Massoub, wasn't there with him to maybe give him that necessary energy that he might have could have used in those first two sets. Because if he wins one of those sets, I think it's a different match altogether. And then to see the way he just kind of let the third set go, it was, I think it was unfortunate for the tournament because we could have seen, you know, a potential team Djokovic semifinal maybe, and that would have been spectacular. 
You described it well. He was very disoriented out there that night. Now, it's an interesting story that you're telling about the foot, and maybe that explains a few things, because the one thing I've seen in team across these last three or four years is a, is a supreme competitor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, working his way out of so many jams and coming back from four love down on the tiebreak in the third set against Djokovic in London like it was nothing. I mean, he, he, he fights. You think you've got him beat, and you don't, and he knows how to dig down deep. And yet wasn't there that day. And, and maybe the foot would explain it because, yes, the timing was way off. The footwork was way off. The execution was horrendous off the ground. And he made it pretty easy, therefore, for Dimitrov to just play a solid, sensible match to get through. But the third set was a disaster. Yeah. And yet perhaps it was the foot. And, I, and perhaps it was this practice routine was disrupted by the COVID. And, and it could be any number of reasons, but it was, I agree. It was disappointing to see him go down in that fashion. And normally somebody like team comes out of a, climbs out of a two-set deficit like he did against Kyrgios. And that's a big lift to win that match. And then you have your day off and you're not 100% physically the next round, but you're excited to still be in the tournament. And it shows. He didn't look that way at all against Dimitrov. That was, I thought, very unfortunate. I agree. Would have been nice to see him play Novak again, but he just was not in a condition to do it and yeah. you know, fell, far, fell far short. And I thought that was too bad. I mean, here he is, the U.S. Open champion. He fought hard at the French, lost that really hard-fought match with Schwartzman and went down in style. That's the way you expect to see him lose, yeah. not, not like this. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I totally agree. I think the bagel in the third set was very disappointing, but he should never have been two sets down in the first place. And, and, uh, Did you sorry, say sorry. You said bagels. Is that because of the name of this podcast? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, pun unintended there. Thank you for giving me credit for that. Um, Go ahead, Owen. Finish yeah, your point. Yeah. Um, I, I think he never should have been down two sets to love, though. In the first set, Vaughn, you touched on this. He was up 3-1, and he had seven game points to consolidate. Missed all of them, got broken back. He had 3-1, 40-15 in the second set. Um, and, and it is disappointing, because that backhand winner he hit to beat Kyrgios gave me chills. It was incredible to watch, and he was a set away from winning this tournament last year. So I, I think I think he'll be disappointed with himself, too, and hopefully it provides him with the motivation to have a great Roland Garros instead of um, a bit of a downer. Listen, he will. And, you know, it may be that, you know, obviously, aside from Djokovic, but maybe even not excluding Djokovic, you know, it might be the team has the best chance to beat Rafa in Paris and, uh, and in plenty of time to prepare for that. But we didn't, you know, given what we've seen him in the last few years, none of us expected what we what we uh, saw that night against Dimitrov. Kind of a shame. Yeah, really is. I guess I want to finish the men's portion by talking about uh, the slam race. Um, I guess now we're at 20. 20 for uh, Roger and Rafa and 18 for Novak. I mean, you got to think, I mean, where, where do you see this heading? Uh, because, you know, Rafa's obviously a big favorite to win his 14th. And, you know, uh, I mean, Djokovic has to be a big favorite for the other two as well. I guess US Open is considered the most open slam. So we've seen some new champions emerge from there, like Chilich and team and Del Potro and others, Murray as well. So I think um, other than that, do you really see... Uh, how how far do you see Novak going? Well, I mean, you size it up well. You have to make Nadal the clear favorite to win Roland Garris, which would put Novak three behind again. It's hard to keep coming back from three. It was It's the first time he's been two back of both. So that's a nice position to be in now. But he needs a little help. He needs Rafa to stumble at, at this year or next year at Roland Garris. He can't, I don't think he can afford to have Rafa winning both and going up to 22 
And that would make it hard, not impossible for Novak, but much harder. So, so I think it, 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 these, this year will be critical because if Nadal goes up to, if, if he gets that 21st in, in Roland Garros, then Djokovic is, is going to be crucial that he get at least Wimbledon or the Open to get back within two. Mm-hmm. And then try to close it even more, try to win Australia again. But he's going to keep creating chances for himself for at least two more years. I mean, at least through 2022, I think Djokovic is going to have a, a lot of opening, a lot of chances. And Rafa, I think most likely it's going to it's going to be largely what he does at Roland Garros. And he'll threaten elsewhere, but he hasn't won Wimbledon since 2010. He's done a great job at the Open to win those last two of his four and 17 and 19 was good efforts from him. But is he likely to win another Open? Probably not, is what I would say. I think Rafa's additions are going to almost certainly be whatever he can achieve in the next two to three editions of Roland Garros. So then it's going to be up to Djokovic to strike everywhere he can. The advantage he has is that he is such a threat everywhere. And that if Nadal did for some reason, get injured at Roland Garros, or, or he lost a team in the semis and Djokovic is on the other side. Uh, I think Djokovic can beat any other player in that field at Roland Garros, and it's not that he even can't beat Rafa on a great day on clay, but uh, he's such a threat in all four majors. He still has not done himself justice. You think of his record in New York, somehow I think that could start breaking his way again. The fact that he's had eight finals and that he only won the title three times. I mean, mm. it's shocking when you think about how great he is on hard courts and the nine titles in, in Australia that he hasn't done a little better in New York. And uh, he's always a big threat. But again, we saw what happened last year with the freakish incident with the with the lineswoman. And then, uh, you know, he got hurt against Stan the year before. He's, he's had a lot of bad luck in New York, but he's always a threat to win the U.S. Open on the hard. And Wimbledon is one of his favorites now. He would That hurt him, by the way. Djokovic not oh, being man. able to go to Wimbledon this past year, he was going to be the clear favorite again and, and most likely win that title again and didn't get the chance to play it at all. You just never get that one back. Rafa at least got to play Roland Garros after skipping the Open, and he made the most of it. So, you know, and then in the meantime, we, we have to talk about Roger. I mean... It's only yes, a... um, sorry to interrupt. I was going to bring that up. I was going to say that, um, you know, he's obviously coming back in Doha and Dubai and uh, he's planning to play Doha on March 8th. And, you know, the long awaited return of of Roger, uh, it's been over 13 months. And, you know, if you go back to 2016, uh, when he had that knee operation, I believe that was the day after he lost to Novak in the semis um, of Australian Open. And he came back, he came back, but he came back a little too early. And then he played that he played the clay season a little bit compromised, and he had some other issues like a back injury. And that time it was the left knee, obviously, that bothered him. And then you we all remember the that uh, even at Wimbledon he wasn't right that year, and he took that fall to Roundich and didn't close out that match. And then next thing you know, he's out for six months. But it was very clear that by October, November, he was more or less physically right and ready to go for the next year. And then obviously that propelled him to have that incredible 2017 run that he then went on winning three of the next four slams that he played. But given the fact that he's now four years older and he's been out almost twice as more than twice as long, actually at 13 months. And the fact that there's not going to be crowds everywhere. I mean, I'm curious how much is the fact that there's no crowds, how much will that hurt him? Because I also think also I read something yesterday from Pierre Paganini, his fitness coach, 
saying that his right knee has been bothering him for years now. And so I'm curious to see how much, what expectations should we have, you know, going in? Because I expect that if he is physically right, uh, certainly Wimbledon would be the prime time for him to add and get to that 21. And if it's not this year, then uh, unfortunately, I really don't see him adding to his tally. No, I totally agree. I totally agree with that assessment. And I think it's going to be hard this year. I mean, listen, he too would have been helped had he not been injured by having a chance to get back a year later after the magical run he had in in 2019 and the two match points against Novak. But Mm -hmm. uh, obviously that was never in the cards and he was was having surgeries. But I I do think it really comes down to him, to this one last hurrah, this one last chance. But it still has to, everything has to break. I mean, yeah. That many players have beat him on the grass, but you know you're 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 going to be nearly 40 years old when you play that tournament, nearly, and uh, that that that's going to be that's going to be a, a, a difficult thing for him to pull off and get himself into the latter stages and be primed and ready to go. And and again, will the knee start acting up a little bit again? We we just don't know. And then the question also becomes: Will he play Roland Garros or skip that and get on the grass early? He's got some tough decisions to make. I still say the odds are against, but obviously he's still going to be a serious threat on on the grass. Yeah. Yeah, I I think so, too. I think sort of similar, like you said, Steve, everything has to break. I think sort of similar to what we said about Rafa at the Australian Open at Wimbledon. He needs Djokovic to lose. They've had some close matches there, but I think a nearly 40-year-old Federer against a 34-year-old and highly motivated Djokovic chasing down the major record, it's it's just not a good matchup for him. It's hard to see it going his way. So I think he's got he's got the ability. He's a great grass court player. But oh, absolutely! And the thing I think people forget though is that I mean, yes, it was one of the great matches that their their two not twenty nineteen final. It was not Djokovic at his best. It wasn't the Djokovic who beat him, especially in twenty fifteen. Oh no, not close. Yeah, yeah, uh, not even close. And mm-hmm. Djokovic found a way to win despite having one of his worst days on the return. So I think it would. It was a golden opportunity, but I don't think Roger's going to catch Novak in that form very often. And if he's catching him more in the 2015 form, then your point about the matchup is even is even more uh, significant and more important. Totally agree. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, I, I guess. Uh... Shall we move on to the women? Yeah, I think before the sun comes up, probably a good idea. (laughs) Let's do that. Do that. Sure. Lead the way. Tell me what you want to talk about. Um, Yeah. Uh, One thing I was just going to add to the Federer point, I was going to say that uh, one thing we do know is that he won't retire in the middle of the match because he's played 1,513 matches in his career and he's never retired. So I think he's really proud of that record. (laughs) Yeah, he is. Obviously, he doesn't... (laughs) Have total control over that. If he had, if he had a moment like Djokovic did against Fritz, you don't, you can't know for sure. But I agree, yeah. highly. And the other thing is, it quickly in his to his advantage, and we'll see it in Doha too. I mean, is that he's he's so fortunate to, that he can end points as quickly as he does. And if the serve is working the way we've seen it in the past, and the com that that one two combo of the serve and a short ball off the forehand point over, mm-hmm. you know it. That's an advantage he has over Rafa and Novak, all of them, is that the capacity to play quick, untaxing points. And I do think that will still be there, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean he's going to have it easy against his most formidable rivals. So let's move on to the women. Yep, definitely. So I guess um, Naomi Osaka, I mean, where to start? I mean, 
to now it's now two Australian Opens, two US Opens for her. In my opinion, she's far and away right now the best uh, hardcore player there is in the women's game. And certainly we've seen her mature and grow as a person. I mean, we saw in 2018 a kind of shy and reserved uh, Naomi who is a little bit awkward when she's talking. And obviously I remember that Indian Wells speech where she couldn't even speak in the in the post-match. And, you know, it was all a bit funny and it was like, oh, wow, she's so relatable and funny and what a great person. But then now we get to 2021 and she's matured so much and you can clearly see the growth and it's a bit misleading in some ways because you think okay here's this shy and reserved person off the court but on the court i mean she's an absolute beast and it just and time and time again she comes up in these clutch situations whether it be match points down against muguruza or plays a terrible game against serena in the semis and then wins the next eight points to win the match with three spectacular backhand winners and you know the best serve right now in the women's game i mean close to a peak serena level so I feel like, uh, you know, how, how did you see the tournament and how, how pivotal was that Muguruza match? Well, you keep, you've taken all the words out of my mouth. I don't think I add anything to what you just said. No, I, I do see it much the way you did. Number one, let's, let's talk about the Muguruza and Serena matches because those were the pivotal moments even more than the final to me, although she played a very nice final and Jen Brady did a good job to keep it competitive. But in the Muguruza match, where you're serving at 3-5, 15, 40, Mm-hmm. He serves an ace down the tee, and she coaxed an error off of the off of Muguruza's forehand, holds on, and then did those last three games was breathtaking, breathtaking because you still got Muguruza serving for it, and Naomi was just phenomenal the last three games of that match. Now go to Serena, and I was a little surprised that Naomi was quite so nervous in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Go- down love two and break point, but she had a pretty good back end down the line to force an error from Serena on the running forehand and and really took control of that first set from there, avoiding going down two breaks. And then this the part that you described was what really knocked knocked me out, knocked my socks off because <laughs> you played a really bad game at four three to let her back into that set. And then the three back end winners, you know, which are down the line, a sharp cross court, she did everything. It was a it, and one double fall thrown in by Serena, understandably, amidst that avalanche of backhands. And then we go to the last game and serves it out of love. That was sheer class. And uh, it carried her right into the final on the right note. And she built those nice leads in each set of the final. The final was interesting because she she should have made, she could have even won it, won it more decisively. She was up. She had a point for 4-1 in that first set and, and, and let Brady back in there. And next thing you know, it's 4-all and she's break point down and she bails herself out and <clears throat> wins the set on when Jen missed that easy short forehand that she, she should have been maybe serving her way to five all, but great effort from Naomi to regroup. And then second set up for love and Brady got one of the breaks back, but Naomi, you know, got the job done four and three. And I just think I agree with you. I, I feel she's the best player in the world period. I think it's only a matter of time on the other surfaces. Clay mm-hmm. might be the biggest challenge because people can blunt her power. There's the likes of a, of a Halep, those types. There's players like that that could, could beat her on the clay on, on their days. But I think she's gonna, she has the game to, to prevail. And, and certainly with her serve, as you said, and I agree with that, and I've written it, I think it is now the best serve in women's tennis. I think she mm-hmm. surpassed her you know, at this stage. And so why wouldn't she be capable of winning Wimbledon? She can adjust to those lower bounces she can deal with the, with the grass courts there's no doubt in my mind it's a matter of preparation and practice and 
gaining a little confidence in the early round. So I think in time here, she's just going to show she's the best player, period, and not just on hard with her two Australian and two U.S. So to me, she's headed for double digits to be sure. I'm convinced she'll get to double digits in the majors, and I, she might even climb into that Christy Ever martina Navratilova territory. Wow. wow. Because she's got so many big years ahead of her. Yeah, the way I see it is like, so let's say she plays another 10 years, right? And so that's 10, 10 U.S. Opens, 10 Australian Opens. And I say, okay, worst case, she gets injured and misses four or five of them. That's still 15 slams. And I'd say even with the young crop coming up and so much depth in the women's game, she wins six to eight of those. I mean, it's not unreasonable. And then she already has four right now. And then you're looking at maybe potentially two or three, you know, Wimbledons, right? And then maybe a couple of Frenches. So... There might be more than two or three Wimbledons. We, we don't know. I just think she has that kind of ambition now. Mm. She has that high ambition. She thinks of herself that way. And you alluded to her shyness, Indian Wells, in those years. Yeah. And she was very shy when she lost that, that, when she beat Serena at the U.S. Open. It must have felt like a loss in a way after what the crowd, after the way the crowd responded that day and their great uh, desire to see Serena win and their sympathy for Serena tough day for Naomi she was still very shy but I think now she's grown into her, her personality is changing too and I think this period last year Cincinnati New York and the Open and and taking that leadership role when they had the day off from the matches and she wasn't going to play her match because she said look uh, you know she was really got involved in the Black Lives Matter uh, issues mm-hmm. and movement and she's now more comfortable with expressing herself and yeah. and playing the role of a leader and it it's carried over into a viewer of herself as a player too and you could see it you could feel it it was almost tangible what she was doing out there and what she expected from herself and i don't think that's ever going to change now and she yeah you know four four majors where she's gone to it gets to the quarter she wins it every time yeah but that's Mm -hmm. also a really good sign that you know she gets to that stage of the tournament and becomes almost unstoppable the other reason i'm so convinced that she could get into that higher teens territory is that she's i don't think we've seen near her peak yet i think her back end's going to get a lot better i think she's going to be more comfortable transitioning getting forward volleying the second serve will become bigger than it is it's got a heavy kick right now i think she'll develop the ability to win points with a little even a little more mustard on it and sometimes going for it a, a, a little bigger than she does now and the first serve, she'll add velocity to it. There's, there's areas where she can improve decidedly and will, and will. She's a great player already, she'll become greater. So I, I have a, a lot of belief in, in what she's going to do in the next, well, really the next seven to ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I yeah. can't argue with anything you said. And I think her record in these big matches, like, you can see why she hasn't lost one yet, really. And I think it's sustainable as well. Like, if you go back to the 2019 Australian Open final, she was uh, three match points to put push, uh, Kvitova away in straights, lost the second set, and then came back and won the third. Won the third. That's a champion's mentality. Um, so I, I think she can do it again and again. And every match she plays on a hard court is on her racket already. So, Oh, absolutely. And then just look at the composure against Serena in that U.S. Open final. Never absolutely. mind. And that was, that was an experience nobody would want to go through. That wasn't what anybody would want to endure because you understand why the crowd is rooting for your opponent. You get it, but you're, no, you're still out there playing and fighting and wanting to, to win this title so badly and, and make your yeah. break. So it was, uh, 
it's it's all part of her growth. It's all part of her growth and development. And and I I'm really expecting. And and Vance is right. Injuries could happen. She's had some already. But hopefully, you know, in, in, in these, her conditioning is going to improve that much in the years ahead to the point where hopefully they can be prevented and she won't have too many of them. I, and, I, and she'll pace herself and schedule herself well. And she, you know, she, her game, again, it gets up to these matchups, but I don't see too many players stopping her when she's, in, when she's highly motivated. Yeah. And she will be motivated for all these majors for sure. And she understands that's the time to peak. She also said something that reminded me a lot of Pete Sampras, where talking about how nobody remembers the losing finals, yeah. mm-hmm. remember the champion. And, and that's the right way to think, and there are not enough of her competitors who, who necessarily do think that. They don't know if they belong. They, mm-hmm. they don't know. They're, they're, they're a little uneasy. They're kind of, you've got to have that attitude that you're, 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 you're not afraid to lose. Some of them are. Many mm-hmm. of them. So I think between her temperament and her game and her capacity to improve significantly in the years ahead, uh, that's why I'm I'm projecting such big things for her. Yeah, and, and absolutely. I, I, I think she can uh, still improve uh, her her volleys and stuff coming yeah. to the net, and definitely so much she can still improve. And already she's, you know, four and zero in Slam finals, which basically only Stella she did. Yeah, so that's yeah. It's impressive. Yeah, Ellis and Roger. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good company. <laughs> Not bad, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say on her um, big match mentality, I think her opponent in the final, Jen Brady, and she could have been forgiven for this, was maybe suffering a little bit from just being happy to be there. And and she did not play a bad match. She had she had a break point for set four all hit, an incredible lob on the run to get there. But I think the fact that her window was so small just shows what an incredibly high level Osaka is playing at. And the fact that to beat her on a hard court, you need her to have lapses. It's it doesn't just depend on how well you play. True, true. I don't know. If, I don't know if I totally agree that, with you that she was happy to be there. I just think she was. She knew what she was up against. I, I look at it more that way. Mm-hmm. She was aware of that beating Naomi in a final, playing her in a final was a whole different story from meeting her in the semifinals of the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think, and she had enough respect for Naomi to, to understand that and realize that she was going to have to replicate her U.S. Open performance and then some. So that was a daunting task for her coming in. But I do think she, despite everything you're saying about her, and I agree with it, that she acquitted herself quite well. You know, she kept those sets closer than they, than they might have been. I mean, if Naomi... If she converts the break, the, the game point for four one in the first, she maybe wins that sooner. At four love, she had a game point for five love in the second yeah. set. These could have been more decisive sets, but Brady showed great resolve to stay in there and make her keep earning it. And she has a very positive attitude, even in the process of being beaten. I liked her attitude, and I feel like she sees herself as someone who's going to win some majors, and I suspect she will. I I. I kind of think Brady is might be good for two or possibly three in, in her career before she's through. She'll have she'll have opportunities. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And not playing it's... Osaka in the late rounds of every major will help as well. Exactly, exactly. And she, she, knows it's, she it's, it's very impressive the way she's transformed her career kind of midway, you know, like going to college and then, you know, going to Germany and completely, you know, that's not generally how you, how Americans, you know, in her generation train. And she you know, was willing to go through that pain and suffering and now 
she's as fit as she's ever been. And you got to wonder with her, I mean, there's a whole crop of Americans kind of in that same that are having a mid-career surge kind of inspired by her and her US Open run. And I absolutely agree. I think Osaka, um, the one thing that she's even improved since the US Open is her return because she's already had a great serve, but now she's returning even better. And she's, she was able to read the Brady serve so well. And, you, you know, you look at Americans, like even in this tournament, you have like Shelby Rogers, Jessica Pegula, you know, and, you know, earlier it was... Pegula played really well. Brady did a nice job to turn that match around from a set down, but it was a yeah. great turn. Now I just and... think we ought to talk, forgive me for being for suddenly becoming the host here, but we should talk a little bit about Serena and her future. Yes, yes absolutely. Perfect, perfect transition, actually, because... Um, I, I thought that, you know, the way she was moving in this tournament, um, particularly in the Sabalenka match and also in the Halep match, because that was a significant uh, test for her, especially Sabalenka having won, you know, three titles and coming off the run she was having and number seven in the world and really pushed Serena. And Serena showed some fantastic defense and court coverage. And it seemed like, you know, her she was moving, let's say, the best she's moved probably since motherhood, I guess. And then you look at, and then you look at the Simona Halep match, Steve, and she she was basically um, out Halloping Halep, you know, winning all the long rallies, and you know, which by the way, which by the way, and I I completely agree with that too. I also think I, I'm I I don't want to be too hard on Halep, but that's that's no, she shouldn't be losing the match yeah. on in, in that fashion either. Part of that mm-hmm. was her fault because she pressed yes. Serena wasn't missing too much, and then she pressed a bit, and it it got compounded, but. I agree with all those observations on Serena. I think the problem was then you go out there against Naomi yeah. and Osaka is the ball is coming back at you so much faster. You're dealing with the best server by far that you face, a much better server. Even though Sabalenka can serve pretty big, it's not in the same league. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing about the Sabalenka match, four or five in the first set, four or five in the third. Mm-hmm. She really yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. Like, those are the games where you've got to hold and keep yourself in the set and, you know, with a serve of that good you should and the third said she'd been four one down to get back to four all so she was really frustrated with herself to to you know get obliterated those last two games of the match and uh but still i agree serena was doing all it was surprising herself with the defense Vaughn. she didn't expect to defend that well she had that look on her face looking over at her corner sometimes but can you believe that i won that point can you believe what i just did she surprised herself but on the other hand Osaka sending bullets uh, from the other side of the net, and and yeah. you know it's hard to defend against that kind of an onslaught. And I thought Serena was too hard on herself in the press conference. Oh, yeah, all, this was a day of errors. This was a day. Of, well, you know, the errors are brought about by the quality of your opponent's play, and I think it had to me it had more to do with Osaka's uh, yeah. greatness than Serena's frail. I think she just got outplayed. I think the other difference also is that, I mean, Sabalenka hits the ball very hard as well, but I think Naomi can produce these ridiculous angles that just wrong foots her opponents, and she has the power on top of that and a better serve. And it's like just, uh, um, you know, she can match Serena basically shot for shot. And it just seems like, I agree with you on the press conference. I was a little bit uh, bummed that, you know, she didn't mention Naomi at all and she didn't give her the credit. Uh, And I've noticed this in a lot of other... um, matches recently especially the four finals as well and even the semi-final against Azarenka I just think that somehow do you think maybe it's almost that she wants it so badly that it's almost she's almost wanting it too much and she's getting it so close and it's just she for someone of her caliber that 
it used to be so automatic to win these big matches and semis and finals and now suddenly you're, you're losing this locker room aura that you've had for you know 20 years uh you know being the greatest and being called the greatest and it's just you know you struggle with that reality that it's no matter that here i am you know long off season put in everything i, I absolutely could trained as absolutely hard my hardest and here I am, and I've just come up against... It's not just Osaka now. There's five or six or seven great players now that can beat me. That's the point. Absolutely right. Because look at the four people in the finals in, in 18 and 19. You know, the four right. different, four very different players. The left-handed Kerber it, and the Wimbledon center court beats her. You know, it's one thing for Kerber to beat Serena in an Australian final in the hard, but this was on the grass. And then Halep, who'd only had one win over her up to that stage. And, and Halep destroyed her two and two. And then you look at the U.S. Open finals, Naomi, of course, but also Andrescu. So, yes, yeah, she's yeah. seen the wider cast of players capable of beating her now on their days. And, yeah, she just tends to blame herself. Also, mm-hmm. the questions come. It's interesting. The questions are always about, well, Serena, was that a bad day at the office? What yeah. happened, Serena? What was <laughs> And so it's up to you if you're Serena to say, well, wait a minute, I, I'm not, ha- I, I agree. I was very unhappy with how I played, but I played a great player today. And she didn't do that. She didn't say that. And uh, it might help if one of the interviewers, one of the press guys would, would lead with Naomi and say yeah. something like, what did you think of Osaka's performance? That never happened. And of course, she did lead in the middle of the press conference. She was, got very yeah. emotional choked up and walked out so who's to say somebody might not have brought up Osaka but I do think it was a I think she knows how good Osaka is and she knows how good the others are too so uh it 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 won't be easy going forward I just feel like she she shouldn't be discouraged when she got to the four finals and the last two have been semis uh you know in in obviously a, a Roland Garros loss in between where she had to pull out but you know, you last two hard court majors in the semis, so that she's been in the thick of it so many times, but it's not going to get any easier, no doubt about it. And and I, I guess she felt like this was a golden opportunity because if she beats Osaka, she plays Brady in the finals, and she would never have taken Brady for granted, but she would have been a clear favorite. And I suspect that she would have beaten Brady in the final if she could have gotten there, but wasn't was not to be. Do you, Do you think, think it's, it's Wimbledon, Wimbledon this year or never? never? Is, that Is that kind of how, how you feel? I don't feel that way so much about her. We said that about Federer and we're in agreement on that. I, no, I think that the Open is a possibility too. It's just I, I think that the same problems are going to exist or all this. And then there's still going to be people even as early as the third round or round of 16 that could – there are certain players that could pick her off on their given day too. You know, mm-hmm. they sat type. So I, I – but I wouldn't rule out uh, an Open or – maybe long shot here next year in Australia, back in Australia next year. Roland Garros, I would rule out. I don't see that happening again. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think it, it's got to be really, really tough for her because she's playing at a very, very high level, and she's making all these finals into semifinal here, but she doesn't have a major title to show for it. And I think on top of that, it's it's sort of with Osaka. It's like Serena might be the greatest, but Osaka is the best now. Serena isn't at the peak of her powers. And so I think that must be a very, very frustrating reality to confront, to play these matches that you know or you think or you're pretty sure of that your younger self could have won. But but she has to adapt, and she did a great job of that. Her movement was fantastic. Her defense was fantastic this tournament. And yet she ran into a red-hot Osaka and came away with 
um, a straight set loss in the semifinals. So I think she's playing fantastic tennis, but all the same, this must be a really, really frustrating tournament for her. Well, it is, and it's interesting because her coach, Patrick, you know, I, I, I had an interview with him last during this pandemic this past spring, and, mm-hmm. and, we, and we brought up to him the, the four losses in those major finals, the, the, and it, just what we were talking about now. And, and his, uh, his comment was, yes, but all four of those players, they all played the match of their life. Well, that may well be true. But on the other hand, where Serena has to then keep where where there, there was a time when I think maybe, you know, the, the absolute prime Serena, if she's challenged by someone like Osaka like that, then she keeps up her end of the bargain. Yeah. And she she raises the stakes and you get a great match and she doesn't lose in straight sets like the like this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's up to her to combat their level. And I, it, it's it's pretty phenomenal that that she could still be again like Roger, you know, you're getting to the very, very, you're at the end of your thirties. Now you're playing on borrowed time and, and she is consistently, you know, she's consistently in there, but boy, that, 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 uh, I still say odds against. Yeah, odds I would agree with that. Or if she does it all power to her, that it's a, it's a phenomenal achievement if she pulls it off. So let's say hypothetically, you know, she doesn't win the 24th and you're looking at, her career versus someone with the consistency of a Navratilova or somebody, you know, who won the Golden Slam like Graf, like like Steffi Graf and the Golden Slam she had. And then obviously the run, you know, after Selish left, uh, how dominant she was. And even before that, and, you know, the that she's won all four majors at least four times. And so many things Steffi has going for her. And she retired young at 29. And, you know, you look at somebody like Navratilova, so good and, you know, for so many years, I mean, do you still would you still put Serena as the the best given her longevity and the spread of her titles? Or you know, I mean, how would you argue that case? I guess, I guess. Uh, it's gonna. I I don't think it's as clear cut as everybody's making it out to be. I yeah, think yeah, everybody talks about say. her now like she's clearly the best with it with no yeah, question. Yeah. Which I don't I agree don't with actually. actually so, too so. many too many bad years, and some of it was not her fault. There was her health and things going on in her life and. Mm-hmm. It, and it hasn't been an easy life by any means. And but no, they both Navratilova and I mean Navratilova had a stretch of five years, from eighty two through eighty six, where she lost fourteen matches. So she's averaging under three losses a year for a five year period, which is astounding. Steffi had yeah. similarly great numbers for a long span too, and and they, they, there weren't many letdowns. And so I think that does matter. All of that yeah. does matter. And so therefore. I don't. I, I'm going to weigh it when it's done. I want to see the endpoint and then look mm-hmm. at everything, weigh the entire thing. But I, but this notion that she's already proven, and the way they talk about her on television is constantly they just label her the best ever now. Well, you can make the argument mm-hmm. that at her best she would beat anyone in in history on any on on the faster courts. You could make that argument that Serena at her best beats Steffi or Martina on grass or hard, uh, but. It, that's not the only you, you have to examine the records and you have to yeah. examine the performances. And the, so there, there's a, there's an awful lot to weigh there. And I, I think 
those two were very much in in the discussion Mm -hmm. very much i I agree Mm -hmm. and i I would add that i think steffi has over 370 weeks at number one and martina won like over 150 tournaments so i think i I think there definitely is a debate between those three i think too often it's limited to just major titles and i think like a, a good point of comparison is that serena has surpassed court i think who 11 of her 24 were fields of not even comparable strength to what serena has gone through to win her 23 but so yeah i really don't think it's as cut and dry as that, as that. i'll tell you a funny story you'll you'll, you'll be amused by this but uh, about seven years ago i did an interview with court and i brought that up it ended up being a two-part interview because she had to leave i'd caught her off guard with my phone call and she had to go out half hour into the conversation so return to the three days later to the interview but mm-hmm. i brought that up about the weaker fields in australia and she didn't say too much the first day about it, but as soon as I called her back the second time, she said, I was thinking about what you said, and she was very upset. She said, you know, those, those fields, Maria Bueno was coming and Billie Jean, the problem, and I understood what she was trying to say, that some years, yes, and often maybe one of them might be there, but there were many years when you didn't have at all the fields that you did at Wimbledon and, and, and the French and, and U.S., not even close. So, and it isn't so much the smaller draws, it's just that it was the quality of those fields and, the, the, and you look at some of the opponents, she walked through so many of those draws that no doubt she patterned. And it, it's proven by the fact that, you know, that's 11 over 24 and none of the others mm-hmm. did she five times, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't even close. And Wimbledon was on grass and she didn't have numbers like that at Wimbledon. So it was, it was it's interesting, yeah. So Margaret, I don't put her in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think Chris Ever belongs well above Mar- Margaret Court, you know, yeah. with a consistency. But, but the Graf Navratilova Williams debate will linger in my mind, and it surprises me that so many uh, te- commentators just act as if it's it's already been resolved that she, yeah. it, it's done. Case closed. I think you also have to remember that when Navratilova and Everett were playing, I mean, how many times did they skip the French Open and Australian Open? And how many times, you know, could they have won more had they played in those tournaments? Yeah, the Australian, well, the French was because of team tennis for, there were some years yeah, in the yeah. 70s, team tennis mm-hmm. that Everett would definitely have won the French. She, she won it seven times, she would have won 10. And yes, they, there were years that they didn't go to Australia because it was over the Christmas holidays because that tournament moved around from yeah. December to January. Yeah, there, there were factors, no doubt, just like there are with the men in labor missing five years in mm-hmm. pro tennis and coming back to open tennis. But uh, more so, I just think it, yeah, we, have to, we have to look at the entirety of these players' records. And I do think consistency does matter. Yeah. And, and, and Serena in the latter stages, really improved in that department. But in the er- early part of her career, there was mu- many more ups and downs than we expect to see from players who were in their 20s and seemingly playing prime-time t- tennis. And Navratilova and Graf are, uh, have her beat in that department. So I think it'll be fascinating to see how, how, it, how it all ends here, when yeah. it all Then Then it's time to evaluate at that point. I guess one commonality, one commonality could also be that, you know, as they all got older, it became harder to close out matches for them because um, Navratilova actually left a lot of slams on the table. Um, you know, I think I can think of some finals that I've watched back on YouTube where she, she had some good chances to win and couldn't quite close it out. I think one Steffi Graf Roland Garros final in 1987, she had chances in that one. She's had she chances, um, First major too. Absolutely. She did. Yeah. And then she lost two third set right. tie. 
81 and 85 at the U.S. Open to Tracy Austin and to uh, Hannah Manlikova. So, right. yeah, she, she did have more trouble closing in, in the latter stages of her career. Not so That's much just because you're getting older and you it's harder. It's not as automatic. And you're thinking, I don't have so much time left. Yeah, I don't think it's just the time left. I just think, yeah, you're you are you, you're just you know, you almost know too much. Mm. you almost know too much you're so aware of what you're doing then and and, and you're right it's the automatic part and i mentioned once made that exact comment to tim gullickson who later coached sampras when he was coaching navratilova in the late 80s and she'd let a, a lead get away of a set and a break against sakova in madison square garden and mm. and he's like oh she's serving for the match she's 30 15 i can't believe she lost i said yeah but tim it's not it's not so automatic anymore and he understood what i meant and there's no doubt that weighs in and it's yeah. it's it's the case now with Serena. She's she has so much experience, but almost too much experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I really do think that like that's a great point. I think when you've played twenty years maybe and you're late in a set and you miss a love thirty on the other player's serve and then you go to serve to stay in the set, it must be hard to think like like classic boomerang break situation here. Like just because you've been through that situation and on the top winning end of it so many times as well. Um so, so yeah, I, I think that's a great point of maybe knowing too much. I've, I've never thought of that before. Well, listen, this has been this has been a lot of fun, and yeah. uh, I enjoyed yeah. it. And thanks for having me on. You guys are great. You know your stuff. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, th- thank you. I, I learned a lot from this conversation. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Steve. You put things into perspective so well, and I think uh, you have a, you see the game very similarly to the way we we all see it, and your memory and everything. Uh, it continues to amaze us. So look forward to having you back. You guys have great memories too. It's a pleasure talking tennis with you. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah. Th- thank you very much. Have a great rest of your night. All right, you too. Thank you very much. All right, see Thanks. you guys. Yep. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.